From the editors of Cannabis Business Times and the team at Quest, this is How to Win a Cannabis Cultivation License, a new limited series that focuses on this integral process, the starting line for all of us in the industry. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Business Times. We're pleased to bring you an in-depth look at the licensing process in the cannabis industry over 10 episodes as things stand in 2021. This is episode nine. We travel now to Florida, where TrueLeave has built a sturdy foundation for what's become a multi-state cannabis operation with a footprint spanning six states, the aforementioned Sunshine State, along with California, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and West Virginia. The company has landed in those states through a blend of organic license approvals via state regulators and a robust acquisition strategy. Both prongs are important in the story we're telling. Chloe Grossman, TrueLeaves Director of Corporate Growth, joins us this week and next for a wide-ranging conversation about how the licensing process has evolved, not only in TrueLeaves' perspective, but in a more general sense for anyone interested in participating in the cannabis space. Florida is one of the hottest markets in the U.S. The state's medical cannabis program serves more than 520,000 patients through more than 200 dispensaries, of which TrueLeaf owns and operates more than 80. Here's Chloe. There's really been explosive growth since we first set up shop in 2015. Um, our first were licensed at least, and we currently maintain about 50% market share in the state. And that market share cannot be explained by the number of dispensaries alone. So we're doing some great work um, and keeping loyal customers. As Chloe will explain, this growth and this patient and customer engagement stems from a strong foundation, a strong team. You can look up the November 2017 cover story in Cannabis Business Times to learn more about some of the background stories of the TrueLeave executive team. But know that the Florida medical cannabis market is built on an agricultural platform. The names attached to Florida medical cannabis are names that are well-known in Florida produce and nurseries. The state legislature legalized medical cannabis in 2014 and approved five vertically integrated licensees in late 2015 including TrueLeaf. The company itself formed from a partnership across three nurseries and a powerhouse executive team that brought legal expertise, cannabis and horticulture experience, and a physician background into the fold. It's this well-rounded team, Chloe says, that set the company on the right path from the jump, something she noticed when she first started working with them. I started working with TrueLeaf first um, as an outside consultant. So it was a client consultant relationship. So in some ways, it's very different than the type of work that I do at TrueLeave now, where we are setting the vision and we're setting the strategies and the goals. Um, a lot of that was dictated, of course, by the client. Um, what I can tell you is generally, whether you're a consultant or whether you're an in-house licensing person leading strategy, generally the goal is always to win a license. Um, every state is different, so strategy changes with every project, um, but I think the underlying theme is always what does it take to win, and if you get into a place where it looks like it's going to take more to win than you want to give, or it will take different things to win than you're willing to do, um, then that's a good uh, time to kind of step away. 
But in terms of the, the goals of the initial founders, I think that a big part of it was that they all were from the same area in Florida, um, in Northwest Florida. And so there was a dream to bring um, economic development and new opportunities to this area of Florida that had kind of been forgotten and left behind. Um, so I think that was really one of the underpinnings. Uh, the founders, you know, they leveraged their existing relationships in the local community to get things done, which I think was really beneficial. And they really rallied the community around them to make sure that every possible person was providing support, um, was saying that they supported the application and was getting on board to provide a well-rounded team. This is one of those cases where the company earned its first licenses in an era with which the team was familiar. Truly, founders had a good grasp of the Northwest Florida landscape. This is the panhandle region we're talking about, and formed new relationships in the burgeoning medical cannabis space as the industry came together in the state. We've talked about the local connection again and again in this series, and it helps when the stars align in a way to keep your operation close to home. You understand the culture and the social nuances in a way that will help you explain your business to city councils or county executives or local law enforcement agencies that might not otherwise be up to speed on what a cannabis business might look like. This is storytelling. So much of the licensing process comes down to a keen ability to know yourself and share your story with others. A major part of that is knowing the place you inhabit and knowing your neighbors. So Northwest Florida is an interesting area. While I was living there, I would always say that it's much more like Georgia than Florida, if you think about Florida. I mean, we were right, right, right across the border from, from Georgia. So it's very rural. I think there's a big focus on agriculture. Um, there's really not a huge amount going on economically, at least in the area where, where Truly was headquartered. There had been an exodus of industry from one of the towns uh, surrounding Tallahassee. And so that town was targeted as a potential location and ultimately did become the location for headquarters because the founders were local and wanted to bring um, new opportunities to this area that they had seen gone downhill over time. So I think those are some of the main considerations, but Northwest Florida, it's very rural, very agricultural. And I think for those reasons, it, it was a community that was open to this type of development because they really needed a win. And that made them ideal partners in a lot of ways. Another reason why that matters is that you'll be engaging the local workforce to some degree. Hiring local is not just a helpful nod to the economic development department. It's also practical and meaningful for the long-term health of your business. Just like you need to know yourself and your community, you want your employees to know themselves and to feel at home. We've said before that earning a license is just the entrance into the legal cannabis space. Keeping that license is the next step and the step after that, a recurring set of steps that reminds you each day to pay attention to what you're building. This isn't a vacuum, it's an industry, and one that's evolving in lockstep with the society around it. It's helpful to be a part of that local fabric. On the Florida side, 
a lot of that was kind of done already by the team before we were, were brought on board as consultants. So they had already uh, brought together the agriculture folks, uh, one person who had significant cannabis experience, someone from law enforcement, and some experienced developers. And those really formed the core of the team and really checked most of the boxes. Um, as other people were added to the team, I think one of the things that was really looked for was um, willingness to work hard. But uh, really from the beginning, I would say they had done a great job of pulling from that local community to get the best and the brightest that, um, that a number of different aspects of the business that needed to be satisfied. From the ground up, building the right team with the necessary skills and the connection to the local community is key. This too is something that regulators will wanna see. They may only be pulling background reports at first on those with ownership stakes or those with executive roles, but it helps to be upfront with the who behind your business. This should all be done well ahead of time. If you're considering a run at a cannabis business license in the future, the time to start planning is a while ago. The second best time to start planning, as they say, is right now, as you're listening to this podcast series. More generally in cannabis licensing, when you're not serving as a consultant, you know, I think with determining what type of team you need and, and when that needs to happen, it's an ongoing process, first of all. Um, I would say you generally start with incomplete information if you're starting at, at the right time in these projects. Um, so, you know, you may want to get started on putting the, the pieces in place well before there are even regulations out. And ideally before um, there's even a, a bill passed, the easier, the earlier you can get in, the better your application is going to be. Um, and I think being a local resident and having existing ties in a given state is very advantageous. Um, but given that there's incomplete information, there's a big, a big aspect of team building is reading in between the lines and the laws, the regulations and the media reporting. Um, so looking at what are some of the concerns that are being expressed? What are some of the main themes or objectives of the program? And those are clues as to what type of skill sets really, really need to be present and which don't. Um, for example, you know, in a very socially liberal state um, where there's a focus, a huge focus on social equity, maybe having a bunch of law enforcement on your team is not the best decision. But in a southern state where there's a lot of concern about cannabis control, it's very important to have uh, law enforcement and, and kind of the people who can um, provide a sense of security for decision makers. Um, but I think once you're reading between the lines, you can identify what the missing experience is, and that has to be addressed first, for sure. Um, and for us personally, truly, the team is really big and it's really impressive. So there's often very few holes to fill. But when we do need to fill holes, we work on an ongoing basis with trusted local advisors to guide us and to provide leads for value add team members um, in the states that we are not uh, residents in or that we don't have many residents in. 
Um, but generally, you know, team building, I would say it's, it's never really over um, because you're not going to say goodbye to a great lead, even if it's at the very end. Um, and the more impressive or specialized the folks that you bring on board are, the better. Um, in general, I think the approach is just to get the smartest and most well-respected people on your team once you've uh, already filled all of the holes that need to be filled according to what the state wants. Controlling humidity in compact, unconditioned commercial spaces presents unique challenges. Variable temperatures and constrained placement means you need a targeted solution. That's where the Quest 70 comes in. Quest's compact, economical, high-performing dehumidifier has one of the widest temperature and relative humidity operating ranges the company offers. Like all Quest products, the Quest 70 is made in the USA using the very best components and materials available. Learn more at questclimate.com. In Florida, like some other states, vertical integration is built into state regulations. It's a mandatory feature of the market, and it changes how a prospective business might arrange itself in Florida as opposed to Michigan. Though TrueLeave has entered markets that don't mandate vertical integration, the company's experience in Florida informs how they view the licensing process more generally. And it's another reason why a deep bench of experience was vital when the company first came together. Very few companies outside of the cannabis space have the same, you know, start to finish control over their product. You know, there's a lot more specialization. So maybe someone in a, who wants to start a cannabis company really is good at growing or has experience in agriculture. Well, if they have experience in agriculture, they probably don't have experience in pharmaceutical manufacturing. And if they have experience in pharmaceutical manufacturing, maybe not logistics and maybe not uh, retail and maybe not marketing. So it really requires a lot of different skill sets to come to the table and to be able to work together um, to put together a package that is agreeable to everybody and also checks all the boxes. So, you know, when I say checks all the boxes, that really depends heavily on the market structure, as you suggested, you know, is this a, a mandatory vertical market or not? Um, but it also depends on the requirements that the state has put in place. In Florida in particular, you know, there was a requirement that all, um, all companies that applied had to have been a nursery that was continuously operating for at least 30 years, um, among other requirements. And so because of that, even though it was a vertical model, some of the key people on the team were very impressive agriculturalists, um, all very rooted in the community. So because of this heavy agricultural experience, they kind of had to uh, find other partners who could handle construction, who could handle the cannabis side, um, who could handle security. So it was really um, bringing all those pieces together and making sure that um, their strong agricultural experience was complemented by the other um, aspects of industry that are, are necessary in a vertical uh, operation. And whether you're planning a cultivation facility in this town or a dispensary in that town, the vertically integrated model will find you interacting with numerous local communities. 
all of that talk about the local connection in this episode and previous episodes goes double, triple, octuple when you're setting up facilities and stores across a state market as varied as Florida. Some states, like Massachusetts, demand local approval along the way to a cannabis license. But Chloe points out that even in the absence of a formal local approval process, there are still a number of de facto local approvals that your company is going to have to go through in however many communities you're looking to find a place for your business. Once you get a license, even if you don't have to have a local approval process in advance, um, you still have to pull construction permits. You still have to, you know, get zoning authorization if it's, um, if it's not already a permitted use. So there are many rounds of, of local approvals that are needed, um, even if it's not explicitly a requirement for the application. And beyond that, I think having local approval, even if it's not required, is very valuable and can set you apart as an um, applicant in a competitive process. Knowing the local contractor landscape is an important benefit to having some attachment to the community. This could come from pure networking at City Hall or elsewhere, but to sound like a bit of a broken record here, it really does pay to have that local representative, so to speak, on your staff someone who knows how to navigate the city like an actual local, because they are. Having boots on the ground is very important and it takes a long time in some markets. When we're looking at states that have only a handful or two handfuls of licenses, and we know that all the major cannabis players are really gunning for licenses there, then it becomes a lot more intense Depending on what the state needs, you know, of course, you'll, you'll tailor your local approval and local ties um, strategy to that. Um, but in general, it's a major focus for all of our projects. We spend a ton of time going very deep in the local community. Um, one of the things that's been a really successful strategy for us is to gain entree through local sponsors, so to speak. Um, so this can be, you know, a local ally in an organization that you end up linking up with. And that person can help provide access to other people who can provide access to other people. And suddenly you have a, a huge network of people who are supportive. And I think it also helps to have some of our um, arguments for why we would be beneficial to the community be delivered um, by trusted voices. Um, I think, you know, generally big businesses are often distrusted and cannabis even comes with its own stigma. Um, and that's especially the case in some of the areas that we target. So rural agricultural communities, um, or when we're working on licensing in the Southeast um, to expand on our Southeast hub, that is, something that is absolutely critical. We have to have local people who are trusted helping us make the right connections in the community and make our case. Um, I think also we spend a fair amount of time on getting local letters of support. So that's everything from a letter from government officials saying they support the project um, to meeting with uh, zoning, planning, um, all of the folks who will be regulating us, also fire, law enforcement, 
and answering questions, giving presentations, making ourselves available and making sure that all of their concerns are addressed and that we gain their support over time. Um, also nonprofits, community members, neighbors, um, all of these folks are people that we meet with and that we try to address their concerns and get them on board with the concept. Um, in general, though, with a letter of support, you know, many people kind of use a template letter and just have it be replicated and replicated with a number of people in the community. But I think the more customized, the better. And so that takes a lot of ground game to build the genuine relationships that support a custom letter of support that's meaningful and really speaks to what we've already done in the community. Um, also, you know, I think it's, it's important to be intentional about who to connect with and where to focus efforts because there's often a lot of different stakeholders and um, I think nonprofit organizations in particular um, sort of start to vie for your time um, but so I think it's better to go deeper with a smaller group of people or a smaller group of organizations than to try to be everyone's best friend. Um, that being said, FaceTime is helpful no matter what and getting FaceTime in the community by being present at community events, sponsoring community events is very helpful um, for building support generally on top of the deeper partnerships and relationships with the smaller group that's really your core network. And that certainly includes local government as well. Earlier in this series, Eric Sklar at Napa Valley Fume in California mentioned his frequent trips to city council meetings and county boards of supervisors hearings to learn the local political cadence and the types of stories that make a place move. This is a game of transparency so you'll want to get a really good sense of how the local government operates. It's not like you're never going to hear from them once you pick up the license and break ground on your facility. As the owner of a cannabis business in 2021 or whenever, you're going to be very familiar with the mayor, law enforcement, the fire department, the city planners, the water department, local utilities, and so on. These are relationships you can't skirt. Make sure they're as open and transparent as you are. Buy-in from local government is really everything. Um, you know, we've had several different experiences with uh, local governments and different approaches. But I think if you are in a community where the local government is afraid to tell the citizens what they're doing and what they're approving, you're probably in trouble. Um, because it's going to hold you back from talking to the community about your intentions. And I feel like that makes you look suspicious or untrustworthy. So having the buy-in from local government, you know, and having them stand up and say, we support this and we support this for X, Y, and Z reason is very beneficial and helps move the project along much more quickly. Um, and finally, on, on the local piece, you know, some of our ground game or some of our most successful ground game has originated with local chambers. Um, chambers of Commerce are your friend. They are there to bring business in and keep business in and, and promote business. So they can really help connect you with the right folks. If you're interested in learning more about the licensing process, 
and you're listening to this series as it's released, join us at Cannabis Conference 2021 in Las Vegas. The show runs from August 24th to the 26th, and an all-access pass gets you into our Create a Winning License Application session. Securing a cannabis business license is one of the most critical and perhaps one of the most daunting first steps in launching a business in this increasingly complex and competitive industry. Make your application stand out from the crowd with takeaways from this can't-miss session for any new or expanding business. We are going to release just one more episode in this series, finishing our up-close look at the licensing process in the cannabis industry. In the meantime, though, we're all ears at Cannabis Business Times. Is there something you want to hear in a future series? Is there a story that you think sheds light on the licensing landscape in the U.S.? Send me an email anytime. I'm at esandy at gie.net. GIE is our publishing company. Or you can reach out on Twitter at CBTMag. We are here to serve the market. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Business Times. Our sound editors are Alexander Garrett and Jay Boyden. And this series is brought to you by Quest.